and he said, go. All right. Welcome to the Hot Stove Society. We're having a beautiful week here at the Hot Stove, along with uh, Chef and the Chapeau. Good morning, Chef. Bonjour, Tom, from live from Madison Valley. I always want to say live from Madison Garden, but that's not right. I know, exactly. <laughs> so you got uh, Luke up and opened uh, with, with this last week? Opened up. Luke is open. The patio is rocking. We have six tables. They're booked over and over. Uh, two times a night, which, which is, which is uh, of course, smaller numbers than we're used to, but at least we're filling that up, and um, it's very fun. And the to-go or to-go uh, section is going really well as well. So, good. We're just gonna keep rocking, and uh, you know, keep the, can't wait for another. All my employees have been vaccinated now, so we're waiting for two more weeks, and we can open the inside. I'm excited. Yeah, there you go. Except for the fact that our governor is starting to talk about uh, closing King County down back to I Don't to even mention two. that. I'm getting the shivers already. <laughs> I'm Tom Ooh. Douglas, chef owner of uh, Serious Takeout out in Ballard, 52nd and 14th Northwest in the uh, brewery district out there. I just ate part of a donut, and now I can't speak. And then, of course, uh, downtown, we have Serious Pie open downtown. And I've been hanging out a lot at Seatown Restaurant, uh, which is a uh, combination of all three of our joints there at the north end area of the Pike Place Market. Uh, it's Seatown, uh, the Rub Shack, and Ed is all combined into one, doing lots of outdoor seating and indoors uh, down What's there. What's the new name? What's the new name, Tom? I've tr- I've I'm trying to decide. I'm trying to decide. I'm struggling. So okay, I, I kind of went back on one of my week. theories last week. So if anyone has a new name for me for those three restaurants as a, as a group, they should uh, email the show. <laughs> uh, we got a big show for you as we do every week. We try to be a COVID free zone. Although COVID is just now, you know, a year plus later, 13 months later, it's just part of our life. We can't can't avoid it. It's just part of the That's conversation. Right. So we don't have to dwell on it. But uh, when you have things things like, um, you know, phases of your restaurant business, of your life kind of be coming and going as the governor sees fit, um, it's, it's just part of what we do every day. We think about it every day. Uh, right. Here are some highlights of our show. We have Eric Repair there, a good friend of Chef Terry, a friend of mine. And he has a new book out called Vegetable Simple. And Pamela, our producer, is quite into her veggies, and she's got some, uh, you know, usually when you, you get a book, uh, if you can see on Facebook Live, usually you get a book and you have one or two pages. You know, Pamela and her uh, purple uh, post-its, uh, there's like 100 pages. <laughs> it's like we have a nine-minute segment, and there's 100 pages marked for us to take a look at. Uh, we're going to talk uh, asparagus with Alan Schreiber. You know, the Washington stuff is hot and heavy right now. We had a very warm week last week over at our farm, and our neighbors are picking like crazy. And, and So make sure when you go out to the, to the grocery that you insist on buying local asparagus while it's in our season. You can buy the Mexican right. stuff and the California stuff and everything some other time. But right now, support your Washington farmer and all the beautiful asparagus that's coming our way. Pamela, you've invited Sid Carter. She's the founding editor of All Recipes. Yes. On. That's a that's a she's been around for a while. She's the founding editor. Yes, I'm, and and now she's in charge of consumer insights. So I'm huh? I think we're going to hear about trends and what's happening with recipes. I still look up uh, little tidbits on All Recipes yeah. when I'm trying to figure out Very uh, useful. Yeah, when I'm doing something. Yeah, it works really well. Stocks and Bros, we're going to finish up our show uh, right before Tasty Trivia with uh, Pamela has gone to this grocery store and bought, uh, it looks like uh, almost a dozen, but it's probably more like six or seven beef broths. And we're going to do a Hot Stove Society tasting panel on the store-bought broths 
Um, it's funny, you know, there's none in a can anymore. When I used to buy store-bought broth, it was always in a can, and now it's in pouches and boxes and foils and, yep. and um, plastic, and there's and no by the cans. Way, they are, and they are getting better and better. I must say that uh, 10 years ago, a stock in the box was definitely disgusting, where today <laughs> it's getting a little bit better as far as I'm concerned. Disgusting. Well, let's know how you really feel about it, Chef. That's awesome. Uh, <laughs> and uh, finally, we're going to wrap up our show with Rub with Love, Food for Thought, Tasty Trivia. And I think Sid's going to stay with us to play that game. She'll, we'll have some fresh meat in the house, Terry. We'll just have to – she doesn't know how oh, yeah. it's played, well, so we'll just have to take advantage of her and – Depends on how Pam picked the question. If they're all from recipe.com, with dead meat? Well, I understand. I mean, it's like all recipes knows everything. So it's like, yeah, we, you're right. We could be in trouble. Uh, let's talk about our taste of the week before we get too far down the road here. Chef, uh, we like to think about the things that really kind of piqued our palate over the last week. Yes, uh, what would that be for you? Well, I just wanted to remind our uh, listener because I did a, I, tr- I tried some agour petit basque cheese and some um, uh, brie this week and two two different cheeses. I haven't had cheeses in in a little bit and uh, I was really starving for some good cheese and I, I took those two cheeses and I just want to remind everybody that how important it is to take the cheese out of the fridge so much ahead of mm-hmm. your time to eat. Because I think it's a mistake that, you know, even in restaurants, often you get the cheese, they're super cold and super hard. It's really not a good justice to, it's kind of like a wine. You know, you pop the cork and you put it in a glass. Um, some wines don't do well with that. They, they need to be opened up. They need to breathe and they need to get oxygenated so they can show their beauty, their flower and all that stuff, all the beautiful nose that comes with it. And it's the same thing with cheese. You know, it's a dairy product. And it, if it's been cold, it is definitely not showing all the beauty beauty than it has so my test of the week is take your cheese out of your fridge at least an hour or two before you eat it absolutely how's that tom and two cheeses that really kind of have how do i say it? they've kind of uh, they're ubiquitous now a brie nobody i mean i'm not sure why you bought a brie because just nobody really buys brie anymore because there's so many <laughs> fancy cheese out there but what drew you to buying a brie well, it's what I had in the house. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean I that a, in a terrible I, way. I'm just saying it's like, you know, no, 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 no. I it's, just haven't bought a piece of brie in, in 20 years, I don't think. No, no, but it was a really good brie. It's a triple creme. It's a delice de Bourgogne. Oh. It was really delicious. Good. It was very, very creamy and very delicious. But it reminded me how, because as soon as it came out of the fridge, I took one bite and I was like, oh, man. That's it's, almost like, it's almost like cold cream. And, and I, you know, of course, waited and then I tried it like an hour and a half later. That's when I actually ate it, and I was like, I need to remind people, take your cheese out of your fridge. Yeah. Uh, well, I, my, uh, my taste is I went over to Bainbridge Island to play around the golf this week with a buddy, and I uh, had an hour before I had to go to the course, and so I took a little memory stroll down uh, the Winslow Way there where I used to work in 1979 uh, wow. and, and 80, and uh, it's just brought back a ton of memories. I dropped into a little cute fish and chip place called Proper Fish, which I would recommend to most anyone, and then um, it, it was really, it was really nice. The fries were a little cold, but the fish was perfect. And so, uh, and and Hitchcock's is doing lots of fun stuff over there. It's just well worth getting on the ferry and walking off mm-hmm. and walking down the main street there and enjoying a little taste of Winslow on Bainbridge Island uh, when you have a yeah. chance. I just, uh, it was just and fun. Go to Marche. Yeah, go. I tried to go to Marche, but they were full. I, you know, like last night, I tried to go to a restaurant last night. I got booted because they were full. Uh, you know, 
my goodness, my goodness. <laughs> Don't they know who I am? <laughs> they do, and that's why they, that's, that's why they booted me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I like I like the answer to that. The answer to that is no, I don't know who you are, but do you know who I am? <laughs> Eric Repair, our buddy, is going to be here next from New York City and La Bernardin Restaurant, uh, talking about his new book, Vegetable Simple, right here on the Hot Stove Society Show, Cairo Radio, ninety-seven three FM. We're back in the Hot Stove Kitchen on Cairo Radio 97.3 FM. I'm Chef Tom Douglas. And I'm Terry Rotiro, the chef in the hat. The chef in the chapeau. And Terry, we have our good friend from New York City here on the line. His name is Eric Repair, well known for his restaurant La Bernardin in, in right in midtown Manhattan. And, uh, of course, uh, has been on the scene for many, many months. I saw him on the Today Show a couple mornings ago. Uh, he's just out uh, pushing uh, his new book, which is fantastic. Uh, Pamela is just such a sucker for anything vegetables. She had to get Eric on the show immediately uh, with his new book called Vegetable Simple. Uh, Terry, uh, tell us a little story about how you met Eric and, Le- and uh, LaBernadette. I have my own LaBernadette stories, but why don't you go ahead and tell us one right now? Well, I think, I think Eric and I met a uh, long, long time ago. Actually, his first cookbook when he was touring the U.S., and we did a dinner at Rovers um, about his book, um, and then he came and signed some books, and you know we did a whole dinner there. That was that was probably one of the what well, we met just before that, but uh, that was one of the first highlight, first time we met. And um, you know he's a super nice guy. Uh, Eric is a very calm. You know he's listening, person. Terry. Don't be too nice. Yes, I know, I know, okay. I know. He's like I'm just trying to introduce him to our listeners as a <laughs> calm individual. Uh, who believes in karma and uh, does really good on a daily basis, I think, and and uh, is a sweetheart of a person. And uh, for most chefs that you meet, he's a very calm individual and very thoughtful and um, he's a special individual. Eric, welcome to the show. Good morning, and uh, thank you for having me. And you make me blush, Jerry. I'm, I'm red here, sweating in New York. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. Too many compliments. Too many compliments. I know. I was trying to stop him. It's like, oh my God! I know we love you, but come on already, um, Eric. Uh, yeah. Tell us about your new book, Vegetable Simple, and uh, what uh, spurred it on. Uh, considering that you have a seafood restaurant, so the Bernardin, as you know, is dedicated to seafood. However, I really wanted to do a vegetable cookbook, and the idea was to create. 100 plus recipes of vegetables that are available everywhere that are not necessarily very expensive, neither difficult to find, like I mentioned, and with techniques that do not require to have uh, 10 pots and pans and 10 burners, uh, people cleaning the dishes and so on. Uh, it's, it's really a book to, to use at home that pays homage to vest- vegetables and at the same time, it's a, it's a great way to connect with the seasons, to support the farmers uh, in your region or to go to the market and, again, um, find what is best in season. And uh, that's what we did with Vegetable Simple. So your love, your love for vegetables started when? I always loved vegetables very much. And when I was a young kid, I was lucky to have an Italian grandmother and a Provencal grandmother. And my mother was a great cook as well. And they were cooking a lot of different vegetables from their own garden. 
and and we really didn't need too much meat. It was mostly like a tradition to have a leg of lamb or a roasted chicken on Sunday, and I'm sure you can relate to that, Thierry. And we had Friday, on yeah. Friday we had fish because it was a tradition uh, in France to have fish on Friday. And I really love vegetables, and I grew up with a lot of that. And then what I noticed a few years ago is that in the summer I have a country house in Long Island next to New York, and uh, I entertain quite a bit. And I have tremendous pleasure in going to the farm stand and finding the best vegetables that they have at the time. And I invite about 10, 12 people because I have a long table for 12, so that's the number. And what I do, I cook a lot of different vegetables in different ways, using different techniques, uh, spices or not. And, and, and I put all those recipes, which is seven, eight, ten, in the middle of the table, and everybody helped help each other, I mean, and, and, and themselves as well. Um, it's very convivial and people really enjoy vegetables and nobody's missing necessarily uh, meat or sometimes I, I serve it with meat. I mean, this is not a book to convert people to become vegan or vegetarian. This is an homage to vegetables. Mm-hmm. No, I think it's, it's something to remind people. Like you said, when we grew up in France, it's definitely we had much more vegetable than we had protein because... Number one, we were not very rich. <laughs> so, so you know, and we grew our own vegetable in the backyard. So, you know, you ate much more vegetable than you ate protein on a daily basis. That's for sure. A vegetable presentation I love that we did here at the hot stove, uh, one of our presenters did, was called the Grandioli. And that, uh, that, always, oh, yes. that reminds me of what you just talked about, putting 10 or 12 dishes. I know it's a little bit different because the Grandioli being all the different vegetables kind of prepped in the center of the table, and then this everyone gets a little pot of really garlicky, yeah. garlicky delicious olive oil mayonnaise. And so uh, th- that is a – it just reminded me when you said that about the table of 12 with 12 different plates of vegetables. Yeah, the Grandioli, uh, I had that many times. Uh, it's all basically uh, almost like a bouillabaisse of vegetables mm-hmm. without the broth, or you can have the broth on the side. But uh, I, I love the idea of having different vegetables and they keep their identity. An asparagus tastes very different than a potato and should be treated differently and so on. However, when you have good quality ingredients, uh, flavorful, uh, they, they really go well together, you, they, they, especially when they are in season together, it, it means they're meant to be together. Like right now, we know we have asparagus, and, and you must have in, in, in your states, in Washington over there, a lot of uh, morels and mushroom coming now, and uh, we know that the asparagus, the morels, the peas, the fava beans, they really go together. Mm-hmm. And in the summer, yeah. we have different vegetables that go together, and same in the winter. Eric, what's the biggest mistake that people make when they're trying to cook vegetables? Uh, if I were to kind of throw my thought in on that is uh, I don't love this whole idea that you blanch uh, in water and then you shock in another bath of water and that you rinse away all these flavors out of the vegetables and protein and uh, vitamins and minerals. I love just making a simple steam without any, almost zero extra moisture and let the, the, the water of the vegetable cook itself do you have a, a technique that uh, could help people from massacring their vegetables? <laughs> well, it's many ways to, to massacre your vegetables, unfortunately. And uh, it's one thing that I, I, I dislike a lot. It's when I, I eat vegetables that are not cooked enough. Like, for instance, mm-hmm. green beans that are like ultra crunchy. 
roasting beans or barely poached string beans do not have the flavor. They don't, they don't have time to develop their flavor. You don't test it. Asparagus, like you mentioned, especially the green one, if you, if you uh, stop the cooking with ice water and so on, you lose a lot of the flavors and you were mentioning the vitamins and minerals. But you, you, you keep the color very green, but again, the flavor is half of what it should be. Um, I think it's very important to, to be mindful about every vegetable. Like tomatoes do not like to go in a fridge. You lose the flavor of the tomatoes when you put them in a fridge. So it's a lot mm-hmm. of little details here and there that are actually in the book. I give some tips um, for you to optimize the, the flavor and, uh, of your vegetables. But um, it's a lot of things that can be done to really elevate the vegetables to their best. Mm-hmm. And uh, cooking green vegetables at the last minute and serving them almost immediately, if you have the, if you have that luxury, uh, it's great because they're really out of the water, they they warm, they're delicious. Uh, it, it's the way to go. Eric, do you have time to stay with us for one more second or segment? Of course. Okay, good. Yes, yes. Uh, when we come back, I'd like to go back to that thought that you had of these uh, seasonal combinations of vegetables with you and Chef Terry. Uh, t- talking about the magic of, say, peas and morels together. Uh, are there other combinations that you think that are just fantastic? And, and let's just spend a little segment on putting some of the things that are in the farmer's market today uh, into, into spring goodness. All right? So let's uh, uh, stay with us. We'll be right back on the Hot Stove Society Show, Cairo Radio, 97.3 FM. Welcome back to the Hot Stove Society Show on Cairo. I'm Tom Douglas. And I'm Thierry Rotero, the chef in a hat. And we're lucky enough to have Eric Repair here from uh, La Bernadette Restaurant and his new book called Vegetables Simple. You can find it in all bookstores and, of course, online. Uh, it is just uh, it's, it's such a pleasure to get to chat. Uh, Thierry, uh, your friend Eric has been, uh, you guys have been hanging out together. I know I've, I've met Eric uh, many times. We haven't hung out much, but um, tell me one interesting little tidbit about Eric that uh, will make him blush. We'll make him blush. Okay. Um, I believe he has a house in Muscat Island. Do you have a house That's in Muscat? That's not going to make me blush. I, I don't have a house in Muscat Island. <laughs> oh, you don't? <laughs> <laughs> I'll show you. All right. <laughs> okay, never mind. I that's thought you stayed my, there. <laughs> that's my business partner who has a house in, in uh, Mystic Island. Oh, okay, well, yeah, that, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> All right. So much for that. Thanks, Terry. That was awesome. Um, that didn't let's talk much. about in our last In our last segment, Eric mentioned that there's just uh, during different seasons, there are magic combinations of vegetables that just work well together. So let's talk about that for a second. Let's start with morels and peas this spring. Um, why is that such a magic combination for you, Eric? Well, the morels are very delicate, uh, very earthy, and they come at the beginning of the spring usually. I mean, now we, they, are, they are in season uh, in America. Uh, they are in season uh, next to the Great Lakes. And uh, we get some from other parts of the of the world, actually, if we want to, but we try to use American ones. And uh, peas, right now, they are coming out. They're very uh, sweet. They're not too starchy. They're not too big. 
Uh, you have fava beans, which is which are very similar to the peas as well. Uh, this is the right time to harvest those vegetables. Uh, string beans too uh, are not too um, big; they don't have uh, the big string, the, the string in the middle, and so on. Uh, they're very tender, and you can you can pair those vegetables together. Obviously, you don't cook the peas. You don't use the same technique for the peas that you use the technique for the morels, but you can pair them together and they go they go really really uh, end in end. The the morels you can make morel à la crème, which is a very classic French recipe. But you can also saute your morels with a little bit of uh, parsley and uh, and uh, even ranch instead of garlic, and uh, it's delicious. And then you can have the peas uh, that are. Either way, swell it with a bit of water and, and a bit of butter, or the fava beans like that, and you serve them warm, or you can have them uh, in soups and so on. It's, re- it's really like uh, uh, the, the right time to do that. We just had our first ramps and uh, our, from our farm, uh, green garlic shoots. Uh, in our, I had a little green garlic pesto the other day. That, to me, really uh, is, is springtime, and all the rob coming off the kale and the chard and and uh, the plants like that. It's just really, that's my favorite part of spring. Yeah, and the, the thing about, are, are very tender. The good thing about garlic and ramps is it's also, you can puree that and use that as a sauce or a dressing on top of your other vegetable, mm-hmm. which is, you know, you can have all those, uh, you know, make a nice pea salad and use the uh, the garlic or the ramps as a little dressing kind of idea, you know, and add some more ramps on top of it, charred ramps. Mm. Very it's, delicious. It's, we're very fortunate. We certainly are. Are there specific herbs? Like right now, we're getting the best of the fresh, tender uh, spring herbs out, the, the tips of tarragon, you know, uh, lots of fresh mint coming out, uh, dill and, and fennel uh, fronds. Uh, is there a, an herb that goes with spring vegetables, or is just naturally anything that grows this time generally goes together? Well, chives goes really well with mushroom in general because it's kind of like oniony. Then when you uh, have a piece of fava bean, actually mint, fresh mint, goes really well with it. Uh, so we, mm-hmm. we, those, those herbs that are coming now are really, are really good. Um, again, they are coming at the same time, uh, and, and for some reason, it's a synergy between those vegetables and herbs that works. Yeah, make some fresh cheese curd and have some mint and some fava beans. And- oh. Make a nice salad with that. Ooh, and some drizzle of olive oil, extra virgin, and maybe a couple uh, crostini on there. Ooh. Oh, that's delicious. Also, you, you, we have some salads that are coming out, like baby salad now, and I, yeah. I love chicory. Chicory. When I was a kid, we I was growing up in the mountains, we would lift the big pieces of the leftover snow, and underneath you you will have small baby chicory that will not be green, they will be white. And we were serving mm-hmm. that. Oh my God, it was so delicious. And actually, because we were close to the legs, we will have frog legs with it, which doesn't promote my book, Vegetable Simple. <laughs> but anyway, it, it goes really well with <laughs> the baby chicory. <laughs> And um, rabbit, too. Rabbit and rabbit, too, well exactly. Spring. And, of course, this is the time when the best cheese is, right? The fr- spring grass on the best cheese. Uh, Eric, I yeah. was um, I was impressed the other day uh, when you made your grandma's, uh, is it called Bialdi? On the Today, Bialdi, yes. Yeah, on the Today Show. And in your book, uh, you have a picture of this. And I've had this dish many, many times. And, and matter of fact, I generally hate it uh, because <laughs> because it's just kind of like this baked 
soggy, you know, vegetables that don't have a lot of flavor. To me, for me, like zucchini and uh, uh, summer squash and things like that. But your version, especially the picture in your book, and, and, and Terry, what's the name of that dish that we would recognize? It's that Provençal ratatouille. Well, no, it's kind of baked in a in a in a nine by thirteen. You know, it's like a vegetable bake. But nobody bakes it like you do, Eric. Uh, your book shows a picture of it completely caramelized to the pan. All those luscious oh, yes. juices all caramelized. Now I could sit down to this and eat this in a heartbeat, where normally I would step away <laughs> from this dish. And that's so important when you're cooking is that caramelization process. Oh, yes, of course, because you know what you do by, by, by caramelizing your vegetables in, in so it's basically a gratin. You put it in a platter and it goes to the oven. It's where you cook it. You have, you sweat your onions, you caramelize them, and then you have layers of tomatoes, layers of zucchinis, layers of squash, and, and so on. And, and so it's a lot of colors. It's beautiful. And by caramelizing them, basically the water content disappears. And the intensity of the vegetable becomes stronger. The consistency of the vegetable that becomes drier. Uh, it's better than mousse uh, when it's full of water. Mm-hmm. And then as yeah. soon as you start to have the caramelization, you have this kind of sweetness coming with it, which is really an enhancing the entire dish. Yeah, you're creating another layer of flavor, which we always talk about with Tom. Yeah, but so often I see that particular dish. It just struck me when I saw it in the book. I see that particular dish often just served kind of just cooked, but not necessarily taken to that next level like you would when you're roasting a vegetable. Uh, things of that right. nature. A more ubiquitous vegetable that I serve a lot of is bok choy, uh, which I think oh, is, yeah. uh, we don't uh, use it a lot in American cooking. We think of broccoli or we think of carrots and corn, but bok choy is out there and it's uh, it's delicious. Especially the I love the little baby stuff, or I even like to stir fry the big stuff in a wok and put maybe some uh, steam fish right on top of it. Yes, bok choy are delicious and. They're very inexpensive. What I like about it is they're very easy to uh, to cook. You basically uh, uh, boil them in salt water, and you have the heart of the bok choy. You split them in half, and then you have the heart of the bok choy that is pretty crunchy. And then uh, toward the leaves, it's kind of tender. And I like the contrast of the bok choy and the and the leaves. And then you can make a very simple dressing. You mix some uh, lime juice, a bit of uh, soy sauce, top it with olive oil, some uh, chopped shallots, and 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 grated ginger, and and it's just delicious. Yeah, bok choy is delicious, and it goes with most everything, huh? Uh, let's spend yeah, one minute on potatoes, okay? Because we only have two minutes left, but uh, one or two minutes on potatoes and the new potatoes of the season. It's just really a favorite time. Mm. You have a favorite yes. way to make new potatoes? I have many ways to make new potatoes, but I I love to take. You can gold potatoes when they're small, boil them with the skin, peel them while they're hot, and then serve them with chives and a bit of butter, salt, pepper. That's it. They never get refrigerated. Mm. They never, they, 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 because again, when they become cold, they lose most of their beautiful uh, flavor. So I cook them, peel them, burn my fingers, serve, serve them immediately, and they are delicious. Uh, it's just lovely. And I love to actually substitute maybe um, goat butter instead of regular butter, too. I just love that kind of gaminess that goat butter brings to a, a new potato. Oh, they, that would be great. Yes, of course. Yes. Terry, do you have uh, one last question for Mr. Uh, Mr. Fried in olive oil is good. Mr. Repair? Give us one of your today's, uh, what's the way, whatever, for lunch today, what are you going to, one recipe from the book, just pick one, something that's seasonal, obviously, and, you know, something you would make. 
Today for lunch, uh, you should make the vegetarian pho that we uh, have in a book, and it's delicious, and it's a, it's so, a full meal. I mean, it's your lunch basically. And uh, what so do you do to uh, strengthen that uh, vegetable stock? So the so to bring some meaty flavor to the vegetable stocks, what we are doing, we use some lentils, and by cooking the lentils in the water, a, a little bit of them, just to to give a bit of uh, earthiness. Uh, almost smokiness and, and this meaty flavor to the broth. It's very interesting. And then, of course, we bring some um, garlic and mushroom and ginger and uh, lemongrass and, and other cilantro and other aromatics. And we make a broth with that and we serve it with cellophane noodles and shiitake and radishes and, and Thai basil. Well, it's really good. Mm, that sounds fantastic. Mm. Thanks for yeah, sharing your like time with us, there. Eric. Uh, thanks for sharing your book uh, and thoughts on vegetables. Merci. Eric Repair, Vegetable Simple is the name of the book. Go out and check it out in any of your local bookstores and, of course, online. Bonjour. Merci, Eric, et bonne chance. Thank you so much. It was great to be with you, Tom. Thierry, much love to all of you. Same Thank to you, you, sir. Thank good you. luck on your tour. Up next, Alan Schreiber is here. He's with the Washington Asparagus Commission. We're going to talk asparagus on Cairo Radio 97.3 FM. And we're back. It's the Hot Stove Society Show on Cairo Radio. Chef in the Chapeau, you're out there in Madison Valley. Have you been eating any asparagus lately? I have not had the first Washington asparagus in my hand or in my stove yet. And I'm Ooh. very anxiously waiting because... <laughs> I haven't been out, but I am definitely this weekend making a trip somewhere to get, and probably the market, to get some asparagus from Eastern Washington. You better. I'm dying. Our next guest is going to come over and beat you up if you don't get some Washington asparagus. That's, that's right. Alan Schreiber is here. He's a, an asparagus farmer and the executive director of the Washington Asparagus Commission. And Alan... Um, Welcome to the show. As I drive to and from Prosser, Washington, I've been seeing people out in the fields just with their knives cutting grass into totes, and the, the season is on. That's right. We had a little bit of a delay. We had a, uh, we had a couple days frost, and then we had some windstorm. That we had a little bit of a slow start, but everybody in the state is cutting. The temperature's warmed up, and there is a green wave of asparagus heading over to the west side. Yeah, absolutely. We love that time of year. Can't wait. Our friends, the Crawfords, this year have not, I don't think, are planting asparagus. They, they pulled up theirs because apparently there's a, a time limit or so that the, a field can produce asparagus. Uh, tell us a little bit about that is, how that works. You can either direct seed asparagus, which is increasingly popular, but historically most people have grown asparagus for a year in a nursery under some special conditions, and then they plant the crowns in, in the ground. And you have to wait one to two years before you start harvest, and you're, by year four, you're at full, full harvest. And if you're, if if everything goes right, uh, a bed has a life of about twelve years. It can be shorter. Mm-hmm. And then my understanding is, after those twelve years, uh, and you pull up that bed, you can never plant asparagus there again. Is that true? You can, but you shouldn't. Uh, there's there's just a there's some called fusarium that builds up in the soil and uh, it is not ideal. If, if you plant asparagus, you know, in 20 years after asparagus, you'll have a much shortened uh, bed life. Ah, it's, I find that a fascinating fact of the deal. All right, let's talk asparagus and how do you harvest it? I see people, um, sadly, I mean, it looks so tough to be in those fields bent over with those knives. Is it literally spear by spear? 
it's it's stoop labor. You have to bend down with your left hand. You have a long handled knife to cut it one inch below the soil, and each spear is is picked up individually, cut individually. So you got a handful, and then you do a butt cut where you trim it off the same size, and then you put it into a box that you carry on a belt on on your side. And because of that, you know we we pay workers a piece rate like. Like it's 30 cents a pound or something. I don't know what everyone's exactly paying. And so it's on a piece rate. And so those guys make pretty good money. Um, our workers are all making 20 or so dollars an hour mm-hmm. and they earn every penny of it. Um, it's hard work, but it's desirable because if you work hard, they make a lot of money. Right. It's, I, I like that the incentive work. That's great. You're a farmer. You obviously love asparagus, so you'll have to, how do I say this, you do you, you don't have to rotate it or fertilize it or anything like that, right? The, the fields that I see are generally, uh, they just kind of pop up in the spring. What are you doing to make them happen? First of all, all my asparagus is organic, and so we, we don't use herbicides on it, um, and so we, we rotivate it, we, we, we rotivate it, which means we just, we, we, we till it lightly uh, down three inches, and the, uh, the asparagus uh, comes up. And so we harvest it for 60, 70 days every day. It's not religious. It does take Sundays off. And so seven days a week. So we'll work 70 days straight. And then after harvest, we will kill again. And then we have to, you know, cultivate, 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 cultivate until the, the fern is too big. And you want to have a strong canopy that canopies over and shades out any of the weeds. And we will probably have to send the hand crew through to uh, take out the weeds that we can't get with a cultivator. Well, it's really really a a very, very strong amount of work to get to the final product, which is also a lot of work to pick. Yes, and that's why it's sometimes a little expensive. (laughs) Exactly. So I have a question for you. I, I, I was shopping at my local grocery store, Ballard Market, and just last week, and still, to this day, they didn't have Washington asparagus. They were selling Mexican asparagus, and it really made me mad and I, I don't know if i need to blame ballard market because i love that store i've been shopping there for 40 years so i don't want to blame anyone but how do you as a commission get washington asparagus out there and make it important for the retailers here in the city to be selling and to be promoting well we're, we're doing marketing efforts we're trying to work with met markets and pcc and some other markets around there we're trying to work with Kroger market, Fred Meyer market to get them to get Washington asparagus, but it's a seasonal crop. It starts in April and it goes till June Mm -hmm. and people want asparagus more than just in the local season. They like to have it, you know, year round. And so they seek out other sources, which is a little painful for us because we overlap with some of the growing regions in Mexico. And so, and sometimes Peru. And so, you know, right now people have a choice of buying asparagus that's uh, grown just down the road from them, or something that's been flown up in a jet plane in a in a belly of a passenger plane from Peru, or been driven up two thousand miles on a on a semi. And so, just think about all the fuel associated with this imported asparagus. Mm-hmm. So yesterday was Earth Day, and if you want to do something for Earth Day, buy local if you can. Buy local first. Yeah, and and uh, very well said. Terry, uh, don't you think that if people, sh- if they see that, in their, they have to be proactive, right? The people have to go to your produce manager and say, uh, if you don't mind, I mean, it would be great if we could get some of our Washington asparagus instead of this other stuff, at least for the six or eight weeks that we can get it. 
Pamela, you had a thought here? Alan, I was wondering, did I see in your press release that you had an identifier for the Washington asparagus so that customers could reach directly for it with a a special rubber band or asparagus is, is, is banded and we're trying to get people trying to get all of our handlers to have a, a band that says Washington on it. But I can tell you one way to tell for Washington asparagus. If, if it's darker green with more purpling on the bracts, that's going to be Washington asparagus. The uh, asparagus out of Mexico is going to be more of a lime green and the bracts on the side are going to be more yellow than uh, and green than purple. Mm-hmm. So, uh, look for a color contrast between the, the bracts, the, the little things on the side, and the dark green stalks. And often they're they're supposed to have a sign where where it comes from. And I can tell you, I realize that I'm a Washington Spirits girl. Maybe I'm biased, but there's no reason in the world for them to be carrying Mexican asparagus right at the peak of the Washington asparagus season. Another thing is asparagus will lose its nutritive value over time as well and, uh, and as important uh, flavor. And so um, our asparagus, it's usually packed within 24 hours of being picked. It's hydrocooled within four hours of being picked. So it's to preserve its, its, its uh, flavor and the nutritive value. And it's usually shipped out and it is in a store usually within three days of being picked. And it's, Tastes better, and it's better for you if you can get local asparagus. All right, we just have one minute left, and I have so so now, Alan, you have to listen to one complaint I have with the asparagus commission. No, which is, <laughs> and we got to fix this. Uh, last uh, last spring, this time I bought a hundred cases of asparagus for my uh, grilling for good salmon bake that uh. I was doing, and. It all came in plastic boxes. Now, I know asparagus needs a wet pack to keep those stems uh, uh, moist, but it used to always come in wood boxes or, or wax cardboard or something. Can we get rid of the plastic boxes on such a beautiful organic product, please? We It, it always was in uh, 11 and 28-pound uh, wooden crates, and they were just beautiful, but the... The cost of the I don't I don't have a good answer for you. Okay. The cost of these plastic ones is is a third of the cost, and it reduces the weight of this by about eighty percent. And it was an economic trade off, but I do hear your uh, I do hear your point. Alan Schreiber has been our guest he, uh, as the executive director of the Washington Asparagus Commission. Thank you, Alan, for sharing the insights about how asparagus is grown and brought to market. I love this. Thank you very much. Okay, bye-bye. Coming up in our second hour, we're going to talk to Sid Carter from All Recipes uh, and a bunch more stuff. It's got a jam-packed another hour to go on the Cairo Radio Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Welcome into the Hot Stove Society Kitchen. Chef Terry Rotaro sitting across from me in Madison Valley. Hi, Chef. That's right. Bonjour, Tom. How are you doing today? Still doing good? Still doing good. I've been busy uh, remodeling the Dahlia Lounge into the Dahlia Bakery and into the new Serious Pie downtown. Uh, uh, I can't wait. Yeah, it's uh, going to be opening June 1st, so we're looking forward to that. Uh, Pamela, though, we have a little uh, Mother's Day gig down there, don't we, that we're going to have a little surprise? A sneak peek for people that signed up for the class on Mother's Day. 
a uh, hundred lucky attendees can go see the Dahlia on the Saturday before to pick up a mochi donut treat. So they are going to be the first customers to have eyes on the place. Yeah. It's going to be fun. Super cool. Uh, we got lots more to talk about, but uh, f- first we're going to jump into uh, our, our conversation with Sid Carter. You have been there at All Recipes since the beginning? Uh, yep, I have. I was one, I was the first hired editor. Um, so it was the five archaeology students who started it. And it turned out that they had this great idea about um, recipes, but they didn't know anything about recipes. For instance, they didn't know the difference between a teaspoon and a tablespoon. Oh. So they really needed help. Congratulations. And you must have worked with Kurt Danmeyer. He was one of the early investors. Right. Yes, that is correct. Yeah, who has now gone on to uh, Beecher's Cheese fame and the Butcher's Table and so many other cool things that he's done. Yeah, he was he was super cool. We really enjoyed working with him. So tell us about all recipes and, and what you're up to. All right. Well, as I said, um, all recipes started as an archaeology project. We wanted to. Uh, um, make a place that was sort of like talking to your neighbor, but online, and a place to share neighbors over that garden fence, so to speak. And uh, we wanted to, at the same time, sort of study, you know, from a, just a cultural perspective, like how how people approach recipes, how they how they recipes change over time and place, and how they morph from one thing to another. And um, we, we at All Recipes take in um, many, many, many recipes, and we publish them. There is a vetting process, because I'm sure all of you have seen uh, your grandmother's recipe, and it's, um, it's light on details a lot of times, especially my grandmother's <laughs> recipes. Right. A handful of this uh, you know, and a like, pinch of that kind of recipe. Right. You know, sometimes they're missing ingredients because they just assume you know things or, you know, bake in a medium oven. You know, like, what does that mean? Um, and we wanted to make it approachable for everyone. So if I'm unfamiliar with how to cook Indian food and someone presents an Indian recipe on our site, um, I want enough details so that I can actually make it right. So yeah. I actually, in the beginning years, when I was when I was writing the recipes, when I was moderating the recipes, um, I would keep my son in mind because he was a very intelligent little boy, of course, because, you know, all kids are above average. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to make it so that he could understand it. And, you know, at the age of 10, he could make a cheesecake off of the All Recipes site because there was enough detail, but not too much so that you got bogged down and thought, oh, this is too complicated. I can never make it. So we tried to make them accessible through our writing style um, and no matter how complicated because some of the recipes can be pretty complicated but we just want to break it down so that it's simple for people um, I must admit that I have been many times to your rest to your website for when I think of a recipe or I think of uh, you know I'm thinking about something I'm not familiar with or not doing every day as a chef I first place I go is allrecipe.com because I've been there and I've been with you guys and seeing how you practice and you try all the recipes ahead of time. So you, you are a step ahead of me, and that's one of the reasons I trust the, re- the website to go to. Well, it's not really us, right? It's the, it's the all the cooks who are a step ahead of all of us, right? If we, if we combine all of our knowledge, it's greater than any one person. So it's, you know, it's our, our audience has a lot of knowledge, and they love sharing it. 
I think it's really fun to see how popular recipes are. Like, what's the number one trending recipe on all recipes? Like, what are people making around the country? And it's always, I shouldn't say always, but oftentimes it's like things you wouldn't even, ex- I wouldn't even have thought about. Like mac and cheese. Um, what, what's the number one trending recipe on all recipes right now? It's always going to be banana, banana bread. Banana, banana <laughs> bread. I mean, it's just like I would never even think about that. It seems so simple, right? So... That's right. so interesting. Uh, our buttermilk pancakes are pretty, you know, I, I have to, this is embarrassing, but I was well into middle age before I figured out how to make buttermilk, how to make pancakes that were fluffy like you get in a diner, right? Mm-hmm. And I I had heard of buttermilk. I understood that that was a thing, but I had just never tried it. And it was a revelation. It was a, it was so just the, amazing, the, and I will never go back. What's the trick, Sid? The trick is just the buttermilk. It's just the buttermilk. Well, it's got to be buttermilk and baking soda, right? Aren't Don't the two work together? Nice. Yes, that's absolutely true. Okay. Absolutely true. You know, uh, mm. I lament sometimes the recipes and, the, and the, the fact that even my daughter now walks around my kitchen at, or her kitchen at home when she's, instead of reading my book and making something out of my book, she's got her iPhone out looking at all recipes and it just kind of ticks me off uh, that <laughs> it's so easy. I, I, I have to admit to the same thing when I see my kids walking around with TikTok and making TikTok yeah, recipes. Exactly. I mean, like, I have a website. I've worked on it for your entire life. It's right there. It's so funny. <laughs> And then uh, the other thing, I, you know, when I was opening here uh, at the hot stove, I went on eBay and bought a bunch of old vintage recipe boxes. And I found it so sad and distressing when they came to me filled with, you know, with grandma's recipes still. And that those recipes were lost to that family for the rest of their lives because nobody cared enough to pass it down or to take it and learn it and understand what the family tradition was about at Christmas time, what that uh, sticky bun meant to the family over the years that Graham made it. And so um, I, I was, I found that distressing. And now you can find those recipes. A, a lot of those kind of even better versions on allrecipes.com. Well, people are often looking for that recipe that they neglected to get mm-hmm. before someone passed on, mm-hmm. right? Or or some, or their recipe box was lost or written. And I'll, I'll tell you a story about we, we've had many international editors over the years, and our German editor used to go and take pictures of all of those grandma's little books of recipes and bring them and, you know, bring them back and then translate them for our site. And it's just amazing the wealth that you can find in the kitchens of those grandmothers and aunties. Exactly. It's amazing. And the tools and the, and the, like just the family lore. Uh, it's also, you know, we always say here, it's uh, a recipe is much more than the list of ingredients and the instructions. It's about the person who made it and, and how it fits into your life. Thank you so much, Sid, for being part of our show today. We appreciate you. you. Sure. That's been Sid Carter, Senior Director of Audience Insights and Founding Editor of AllRecipes.com. Coming up next, let's talk stock. Pamela has brought us a bunch of different stocks, and uh, we're going to dive into a Hot Stove Society tasting panel uh, in the next segment or two. On Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Show on 97.3 FM. Let's talk stock. It's uh, Hot Stove Society Show. I'm Tom Douglas. And I'm Terry Rotterdam, the chef in the hat. And we've got two segments here that we're going to do right back to back and all about stock because it's something that it's one of the most asked questions that I get is do you like or do you ever buy stock off the shelf at the grocery store? And when I when I do go to the grocery store, 
I literally have people that follow me around and look in my cart to see if I'm sneaking any <laughs> trashy stuff from the store. And Which I, they know you do. If I, buy, if I buy canned stock or something, I always put it on the bottom of the cart and I put over top like a, a head of cauliflower or a, some broccoli and some fennel. <laughs> I always cover up so anything are- trashy because people always are looking in my cart. <laughs> Big buck choice will be nice hiding. <laughs> um, I love how you do that. Chef, let's talk about how easy it is to make your own stock. And let's talk about making broth compared to stock, uh, making bone broth, and uh, what you like to do to kind of separate yourself from some of the ones maybe we're going to taste in the next segment when we do our Hot Stove Society tasting panel on all the different uh, broths that are available in your supermarket. So for me, to start, there is two kinds of broth. There is the dark broth, the brown broth, mm-hmm. and there is the uh, white broth or clearer broth. And um, those are differentiated normally by roasting first, which gives you a darker stock, or not roasting, just blend, just cooking in, in water, and that gives you your clear stock or so your that's a, wider that's, stock. Yeah, that's no difference whether you're doing beef or, or chicken, right? You can roast your chicken Correct. bones and make your stock a little bit darker or Correct. go just with raw bones, and same with beef. I mean, obviously right. the beef's going to be much darker, but, but that is the real difference. Correct. Yeah. So the difference, in especially at home, would be based on timing. It takes longer to roast ahead of time before you make your stock. However, my philosophy is that it depends on how you're going to use it. If you're using a chicken stock or a vegetable stock to make a soup or to just add to a stew that you have in your freezer, you don't need to roast the bone necessarily because you're trying to shine the vegetable you're making as a soup. However, if you're trying to make a sauce... I definitely recommend getting that extra layer of flavor that you achieve by roasting your bones, roasting your vegetable, extra caramelization, um, longer time of cooking, and when you when you're done cooking, you have that extracted that extra flavor, which makes your stock richer, a little bit denser, and you have a better product for your sauce. And a little different viscosity, right? When you get that very reduction, yeah, yeah. different viscosity, stronger, uh, more gelatinous, and more. Um, a bit thicker, just a bit thicker, and not by adding any starch or anything, just thicker by reduction and by cooking and by extracting more collagens and all that stuff from all the bones and everything. Right. So now don't get confused if you're doing a vegetable stock. Don't roast your vegetable for three hours because that's not going to give you anything good. Uh, that's way over the top. So for vegetable stock for me, I always start by browning my onions, giving it a nice blonde. I don't brown them. I blonde them. I put them in a little bit of olive oil and or butter, depends on the two I'm using. And then I sweat those onions until they're blonde. I don't go dark, I just go blonde. And then I had carrots, celery, fennel, all that. And I do give it a little toss around and get it sweating. So then it gives it a little caramelization around the vegetable. And then I add my water. I don't just... Um, and those are two different stocks. I'm making the, the roasting vegetable basically uh, quickly in a pan to make the vegetable stock or blend, just put vegetable in a pot and put some water. Mm-hmm. Those are two different stocks. Mm-hmm. I think you get more flavor and richer uh, richness out of roasting the vegetable ahead of time. Um, important to me is not to throw in things like zucchini or stuff like this that break down within five minutes and they're in the water and have no flavor addition to your stock. Right. So that's not something you save to put in a stock. Um, mistake that I've seen many people do 
uh, like turnips. It, it doesn't add anything to a vegetable stock, and it's going to break down within five minutes being pureed into your into your stock. So it's not going to help. And, of course, there's some um, vegetables that add like a skunky flavor. Like I wouldn't put necessarily right. cabbage or broccoli or things like that in a stock correct. because you get, you get a funk that, you know, if you want that funk, if you're going for something like a, a cabbage and onion soup like you might find in Chinatown, then that is it's you're basically putting the cabbage and onion in water and that's your whole soup right right so that's right. a different kind of stock now let's talk about uh so we've got our base stock we've got a chicken stock you know it's typical carrot celery onion thyme black peppercorn bay leaf chicken bones right now we've just got this basic chicken broth okay in my mind when i make these kind of things for my when i'm larding my freezer um, I'm making them as, as plain as I want to make them. You know, just just right. that, just the chicken broth. Now I'm going to bring it out. Okay, I want some chicken pho at home, right? I'm going to make right. a, a. I've got some shredded chicken left over from maybe a rotisserie chicken, or I've got some mm-hmm. fried tofu. Um, so now I take that plain broth that I have out of my freezer, right. and honestly, you can do this with a store bought broth. But you know, let's just be our chefy selves and, and pull out our fancy plain broth that we made uh, now i want to spice it up right now's the time when you're adding a flavor profile so i might put that broth on the stove for me and i'm not saying this is traditional pho but i'm just saying this is what i would do i would put a chunk of ginger in there i would put mm-hmm. a, uh, a stick of cinnamon bark in there i would put right. a, a few spices at this time that meets the profile that i'm looking for so that you don't want to do all that before when you're larding your freezer because now your stock is limited in how you can use it once you pull it out, Correct. right? So it's, so it's it's good to just put a plain broth in the freezer and then spice it to order when it when it comes out. Yeah, you can add some kefir lime. You can add some all kind of different flavor to that. And you're right, Tom. It's nice to keep it as bland as possible in your freezer in terms of added spices and do that at the last minute because you don't know how are you going to use your stock? It could be a stock deglazing after roasting a, a pork loin, or it could be uh, after, you know, doing some fish. I mean, you can use, you know, if you're searing a piece of cod, you could literally take the cod out of the pan, deglaze your pan with chicken stock, nugget of butter, and you got a wonderful little sauce. Mm-hmm. And you can add to your chicken, to your cod. You know, it would not hurt. And it doesn't taste so, super yes. chickeny either, like even if you're putting it no. on your cod, right? Yeah. Right. It tastes very rich. as a, It's very silky and rich, especially if you add a nugget of butter in there. Uh, it's going to be like a very rich, unctuous sauce that goes right on top of your fish. Mm-hmm. And then don't forget that most likely I'm not going to just do that. I'm going to probably put a little bit of spice, uh, some, kind of a, some kind of an herb, some kind of a spice into that broth as it's reducing down before I add my nugget of butter, which would definitely make it into a much more herbaceous sauce. Okay, so then the last thing, we only have less than a minute, but the last thing I would say is that when you're larding your freezer with these stocks, whether it's beef stock or veal stock or chicken stock, I put it in as broth in uh, like yeah. half-pint containers, sometimes even a quart mm-hmm. container. And then I, at the, when I'm making the stock, I refrigerate, reduce it, pull the fat off the top, and then I'll reduce it down to a demi. So I have some yeah. demi in my freezer, and then I have some broth in my freezer. Right, Absolutely. so that it's really and nice to be able to cut in and get there a little uh, half ounce or two ounce uh, chunk of demi out of your freezer. Correct, and and the demi is very easy. You take the stock, you reduce it down by two third, and you have this very thick, unctuous stock, and you can store that into an ice cube tray, 
and then overnight it's frozen. Then you pop those cubes and put them in a sandwich bag or a good a good thick plastic bag. And most importantly, when you put your stock in the freezer, make sure you say what it is because you won't remember. And then and then date it. And then also make sure you don't fill up the container with the lid all the way to the top. Give it a, a three quarter inch to an inch before the top because it will expand in the freezer as it freezes. Exactly. All right. When we come back, uh, Pamela has brought us uh, a half a dozen or so stocks off the grocery store shelves, and we're going to do a little hot stove tasting panel on our uh, broths and declare a winner of what's available in the marketplace today. On Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Welcome back to the Hot Stove Society Kitchen, where we're featuring a Hot Stove Society tasting panel today. My name is Tom Douglas. And I'm Terry Rocherro, the chef in the hat. And we are joined by uh, my partner, Eric Tanaka, here in the kitchen. And uh, Eric, uh, we, are, we, we brought you in f- for this special because this is such a fascinating panel that we have when you get to taste <laughs> Ten cold stocks uh, that we thought we'd have somebody special in for doing that with us. So exhilarating. So exhilarating. Thanks. Um, So, Eric, when you look at a stock, Eric's been cooking for 40 years, James Beard Award winner. Uh, When you look at a stock, what do you want out of it? And Terry and I talked a little bit in the last segment about how we put kind of not flavorless stocks, but plain stocks in our freezer, and then we spice them as we need them when we pull them out. I have the same basic approach. I don't want them too flavored because I think uh, unless it's really just the essence of the dish that you're cooking, then that's what you want. But I think you're trying to – it's it's more an additive approach I would take as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, not that it's neutral because I think it should have the basic uh, flavor of what you're trying to uh, put in there. But um, I think, you know, specifically the dish that you're cooking – and you mentioned pho earlier – you know that that kind of broth is going to be seasoned way differently than something like mm-hmm. a you know a brodo in, in Italian cooking or mm-hmm. something like that. So I think neutral, and then you're building on that. Okay, so let's look at these stocks as we might uh, be using them. In my mind, um, when I'm buying a stock like this, let's just start with the dish risotto. Are you good with that, Chef Terry? We're going to buy Absolutely. these based on with the idea that we're going to use a plain chicken stock for risotto. And the risotto, you're going to put your onion or your garlic or your cheese or all the different things that go in risotto. That's going to be separate. But So we need just a, a plain stock. Uh, Chef Terry, why don't you start us off there? We have uh, three beef, four chicken, and two vegetable stocks. Uh, I'm yep. going to um, – I'll name off the, the beef brand. So let's start with the beef. We had um, – your kitchen basic beef broth, which I see a lot in the grocery stores these days. Kettle and fire beef broth, and Pacifica, which is uh, uh, you know they, it's a group that makes almond milk and soy milk and oat milk, and now, and they make these broths. Uh, Pacific Foods beef broth. So, did you have a favorite chef? So my my favorite out of the three would be kitchen basics, mainly because uh, I found kettle fire was lacking a little bit of the beef flavor. I mean, yes, we don't want it to be too one side seasoned already or flavored already, so we can't use it anywhere else. But I do need a little beef flavor, and I, I felt it was a little bit lacking in Kettle Fire. And uh, Pacific Beef Broth, um, beautiful, clean flavor. But I, again, I did not pick up the strong beef flavor there or a beef flavor. So the winner for me will be the Kitchen Basics. And I will use it in my risotto to give it a little beef flavor because I'm, I'm going to put some drunk calais. I'm going to put some. 
other stuff in my risotto, then I want to make sure matches all that. All right, Chef Tanaka, did you have a thought? Uh, I kind of um, mirrored Terry. Um, that the kettle and fire was definitely very neutral. Very neutral, yeah. Too yeah. much of anything. Yeah. Uh, the Pacifico was just a little bit too mushroomy for me. It's, you know, I didn't get a lot of beef as as well. So I, I think by default I, I came back to the kitchen basics, but there was a little bit of a kind of a tart uh, after taste to me that, yeah. that I wasn't totally loving. I didn't love it either, and I got to say, all three of these uh, I would not buy. I, I would definitely just uh, have to choose, or I would take them home and I would have to infuse them with a couple of beef, you know, roasted beef bones, and kind of go from there. Maybe you just put beef a little, scraps. yeah, maybe you just put a little scrap in for a half hour instead of making beef broth for maybe eight hours. You could just uh, right. make a difference. Okay, let's go to chicken, chef. Uh, we have four chicken stocks. One is the kitchen basics. One is the Swansons. One is the bona fide, and one is the house stock, the, the, a, a clear stock that we make uh, for different things in the house at our company. Right. So, so Swanson to me was reminding me exactly of, and that sort of far back uh, memory of opening a vermicelli chicken can soup. Mm-hmm. The broth that's in there reminded me of that, like a little bit of salt, um, a little bit of depth of what we have associated with chicken now. That was my, my memory tasting that. Um, not necessarily what I would want in my chicken broth or chicken stock in my freezer. The one that I took, um, again, kitchen basics, would probably be the one out of all the other three. Your chicken stock, uh, the, the one from your house, is good, but to me it's missing a little bit of the chicken flavor. Mm-hmm. So, again, it depends on what you're going to use it for because I can take that and reduce it down and extract that flavor you know, accentuate the chicken flavor that's in there. Mm-hmm. But at first glance, it's a bit light. Um, the bonified was also a light uh, chicken broth for me. And uh, so I go back to kitchen basics if I have to pick one of the four. You don't have to pick them. You can just say you wouldn't buy any of them. Well, um, you know, let's say that we have to buy one okay. because, <laughs> you know. Yeah, because I mean, then you're not a- having your risotto. <laughs> Exactly. Driving <laughs> uh, water. Chef Tanaka? Uh, I thought the most unique one was that Bonafide. I got a, a lot of ginger out of that. Um, yeah. So I, I didn't get a lot of chicken. I got a lot of, you know, alternative flavors. Uh, I actually would go with ours. I thought it was uh, kind of right down the middle and, and kind of utilitarian in a lot of different ways. And uh, I think Terry thought it was a little bit maybe under-flavored, but... Uh, for me, the Swanson and the Kitchen Basic, going back to your taste memory, are kind of that similar chicken soup out of a can kind of flavor. A little stinky. So, yeah. 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 And, and, yeah. And, you know, certainly comforting, but I'm not sure if I'm throwing that in my risotto today. So um, <laughs> I, I would agree. I wouldn't buy any of them like the way they are. I think that uh, if I think about them reduced down a little bit, I, I would go with the, the plainer one, which is ours. Um but, you know, people can't buy ours, so I should probably just take that out of there. Of the three commercially available ones, um, I wrote, yuck, salty, and bad. So um, <laughs> I don't know what to say about that. Okay, let's go for the veggie broth. And, again, you can't buy ours. Ours is very uh, plain and clear. And it is, uh, It's uh, if I remember right, this was made intentionally for pho, vegetable pho. For Annie's box that she was making, so and 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 that that has a purpose. I definitely agree on that. I I, I think then the the stock itself is definitely one purpose kind of idea. 
I would add vegetable to it. So one quick way to fix something that's not quite as strong or not quite as you want it for the beginning, just throw a half an onion sliced uh, couple of carrots and throw them in the pan and give them a little caramelization, put the stock right on top of that, you right instantly will get an extra flavor in your stock. Mm-hmm. And it's all vegetable. So, you know, you just cook that for a minute and then you have extracted a little bit more flavor of vegetable. Now, this Imagine um, stock that uh, we tasted, uh, would you buy that, Chef Terry? It's a very no, thick I, and very I, I cloudy. It's almost a soup already. Yeah. Um, I would just, I would just, no, it's not, it doesn't remind me of a vegetable stock at all. It so reminds not, me of something that's. You're right. It's like a soup. It's, it's like something that you wouldn't really add to something else. You'd serve it on its own, probably. Correct, correct. And I would just throw in some vermicelli in there and I'd have, a, you know, some cut, uh, diced artichoke blanched and put that in there. And I would, I think I would be very happy with that, but uh, not a vegetable stock. Chef Tanaka. I'd agree. It was almost like a, definitely like a soup. Um, yeah, I think maybe you could mix ours and that one and come up with something that's kind of in the middle that mm-hmm. would be more multi-purpose. Because right. definitely ours was lean. I was saying I wrote down it was tasted like tea. Um, so it was right. it was clean, but you know, kind of devoid of real veg flavor. Mm-hmm. And so the um, the important part there is when you go back to the T word, that is a way to make interesting stocks uh, that are not meat based, mm-hmm. which is to use tea, uh, whether it's herb tea or you know if you want a quick vegetable stock, uh, hot water and a what 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 would you say like a even even a chai tea lemon. or or what I use I use I use lemon verbena from my garden a lot mm-hmm. to uh, make infusion. Mm-hmm. I call them infusion and. Uh, Reduce that down, and uh, you know, once you've made the infusion, you strain the whole thing up, and then you reduce that what, that broth or that water down, and you really emphasize the uh, uh, lemon verbena flavor. And then, of course, at the end, you just if you want to, if your lemon is what you're looking for, let's say you're making a, a confit lemon risotto, whatever, you can you can do a little bit of lemon um, juice, just a couple drop of lemon juice, and then finish your risotto with that, and that will do a beautiful flavor. I yeah. use uh, dried I mushrooms and uh, kombu or seaweed a lot. Right. I think that would yeah. be the key there is is that kombu will actually add some of the viscosity that you're looking for because seaweed has a natural agar agar in it, right, to help with thickening. But uh, And dried Absolutely. mushrooms are, are a fabulous addition to vegetable stock. Right. And then beans, too. Uh, if you do, uh, let's say, chickpeas, you add that to that, you also will get the viscosity. Uh, from just cooking the chickpeas in that broth, and then you can strain the chickpeas and put do something else with it, or make a stew with that and have a wonderful sauce of uh, chickpea and vegetable stock. Right, and that was interesting earlier. Eric Repair on the show said he uses lentils in his vegetable broth to add some texture yeah. to it. Yeah, uh, to, to when he's making vegetable stock. Well, Chef Tanaka, thank you so much for joining us and helping us through our Hot Stove Society tasting panel on cold stock. Thank you. It was wonderful. <laughs> See, <laughs> I'm glad we could uh, entice you. Save that for me. Yeah, I'm glad we saved that for come, you. Come next. Hey, come next week. It's cold coffee. <laughs> Up next, it's time for our love with love, food for thought, tasty trivia challenge, right here on Cairo Radio, the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. It's time for Rub With Love, Food for Thought, Tasty Trivia, right here on the Hot Stove Society Show. My name is Tom Douglas. And I'm Terry Rotturo, the chef in the hat. Rub With Love is handcrafted, 
versatile rubs, sauces, and mustards that add a flavorful kick and a whole lot of love to just about any meat, fish, or vegetable. We make them right out there in Ballard where our serious takeout is. Look for Rub With Love products in your local grocery store or butcher shop or find them online. Last resort, you can always go to TomDouglas.com and get everything that we make. It's always delicious. Uh, Pamela, tell us about uh, the rules of our game and who our lucky winner is. We have three contestants today. Tom, Terry, and our guest, Sid Carter, from All Recipes. Each are going to receive five questions. The person that uh, has the most ones wrong is the loser and pays for the shipping of this week's prize, which is our incredible shallot mustard with uh, veggie rub and salmon rub. Sean, did we pick a winner yet? To be announced. Uh, as we go through the questions. So let's launch in. Terry likes to go first. You ready, Mr. Rotoro? I am so ready. Which type of pasta translates as little worms? Vermicelli. Yay! Number two. Japanese horseradish is better known as what? Wasabi. Oh, strong out of the gate. What type of pastry would you use to make profiteroles? Patashu. Patashu, why not? <laughs> three for three. Patashu. <laughs> Morel is a variety of what? <laughs> either, either is a very funny guy of non. <laughs> a type of mushroom. Yeah. What do you mean? What? Correct. <laughs> is this really a question? Yes. Um, oh, wow. And Let's talk about morel for just one quick second. Oh, please. There are two types in the Pacific Northwest. There is the two-piece morel and the one-piece morel. The one-piece morel is known as the true morel, which is the one that we are familiar with, stronger flavor. And the other one is a fourth morel, which is a two-piece morel. The head separates from the leg or the stem, I should say. And those are spring morel in the Pacific Northwest. Also need to be cooked all the way because they are a little bit harder to digest. Good and they're very tip. wet. They're very wet. The, the yes. true morel is a drier morel. The, the false morel is a wet and can easily take roasting. Nice, nice, nice tip. Thank you. And number five, what dessert was named after a Russian ballerina? Oh, Miss Pavlova. <laughs> wow, Hinkley gave you the easy set today. Five yeah, thanks five, so much. Mr. Man, that was very easy. <laughs> All right. So easy. Sid's, uh, Sid's going to get the wrong idea that this is this is a children's game. Here. I I I would not have done as well as he did. I'm just going to put that out there. All right. Okay. He's very knowledgeable. <laughs> Sid, you're up next. Mace grows around the outside of which other spice? Nutmeg. Yes. Yes. What ingredient makes a souffle rise? Eggs. Yes. See, you're wow. awesome. I am Actually, in big egg trouble. White. <laughs> egg white. Egg white. Is it just the white, Terry? Egg white. Okay. Just the white. Oh, uh, she still went. She still got it right. No, no, no. Of course, of course. Uh, number three, cured salmon is the main ingredient of which food? Cured salmon. I I have I no get, idea. Lots. I don't get the question. I, no, I don't get the question either. Yeah. What kind of uh, it's trying to get us to identify gravlax uh, as the food. So that cured salmon oh. can be gravlax. Yes. So 
We'll have to give her a different question. Well, I think she's right on that one. Uh, we're giving it to you, Sid. Yeah. Uh, uh, thank you. That was oddly, <laughs> oddly worded. Number four, where does goulash originate from? Uh, Hungary. Yes. Yes. It's going strong. And your final one, the Netherlands is famous for which Dutch cow's cheese? Oh. <laughs> for what? Uh, what? What is the question? Can you repeat? Yeah. In the Netherlands, they're famous for which Dutch cow cheese? Uh, Gouda? Yes. Five yes. for five. <laughs> Tom. I'm afraid I have to wow. buy the prize and pay for shipping now. This is, this I think is outrageous. This is what's this going is no to way to treat the host of the show. <laughs> uh, all right. The, uh, we'll give you a softball to start. What is the flavor or main ingredient of aioli? The flavor or the main ingredient Mint. of aioli? <laughs> um, it is uh, aioli... Uh, and chef, uh, how do you say "oli" in France? I've, I have asked you this. Aioli. I, so you pronounce the "i" at the at the end. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it is garlic. I always yes. think of "aioli" as being the Italian word for it. It is uh, it's the same. A mix huh? Between it, no, I think it's an Italian word originally. Okay. Um, the French, like usual, just took it all, took it over, and make it better. Oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, number two, watermelon contains how much percentage of water? Uh, whatever the melon part isn't. We need water. a number. Melon, water, melon. We need a number we for you to win. Okay, I'm going to say ninety uh, percent. Uh, We're giving it to you, ninety-two. 92. So that is a yes. Whoa! Wow. There's a reason cool. they call it watermelon. Number yeah. three, what is the most widely eaten food in the world? In the world? Uh, bananas. <laughs> <laughs> that Not would possible. be rice. Rice. <laughs> Number four, what vitamin gives sweet potatoes and carrots their Carotene. orange color? Vitamin A. <laughs> Number five, <laughs> what is chipotle chilies? Ripe jalapenos. <laughs> Smoked jalapenos. Smoked blessing, Diff. I guess Tom's the loser today. I guess today. I am the loser today. <laughs> Sid from All Recipes, thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. That's Sid Carter. Uh, thank you for playing our well, game and for, for, and for crushing me. That's really sweet. Uh, thanks for never and coming back on our show. <laughs> and we have a Next winner. We can just have a and we have a winner? A yes, Lori Dragseth. Way to go, Lori. I'm coming Lori. to you. Yeah, exactly. If you want to be part of the show, you can join the community on Facebook at Hot Stove Society Radio Show. You're listening to us on Cairo Radio 97.3 FM. The show is produced by Pamela Hinckley, who did those softball questions for my for my uh, contestants today. And uh, and our sound and production is by Sean McFadden, editor Sean Don't Call Me Dottori. Also remember, if you miss any episode of our Hot Stove Society show on Cairo, you can listen via podcast. Just subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening and have a wonderful weekend.